Welcome to the North Texas District Leadership Podcast. This is a resource from and for those of us serving Jesus with the good old North Texas District of the Assemblies of God. Good day to you, friends, wherever this finds you, uh, doing dishes, driving across the state, getting ready for church, whatever. I hope you're having a good day. Hope you're enjoying serving the Lord. I pray the Lord's best for you and your family. want to jump right into the interview today. Uh, I have with me a longtime member of the North Texas District Ministry family, Pastor Tim Ferguson. Welcome, sir. Well, Lennon, it's good to be here today. I'm excited about getting to hang out with you. Yeah, this is going to be great. So Pastor Tim serves as the executive pastor for Trinity Church in Cedar Hill. Small, struggling, really a floundering endeavor out there. So you, you guys stay faithful and God's going to move, okay? Uh, we still try to be small in many ways. Yeah. Well, so Trinity Church is, as mentioned, in Cedar Hill. Executive pastor right here, uh, serving senior pastors Jim and Becky Hennessy. And so Trinity Church actually has three campuses. You have Cedar Hill, Fair Meadow which is pretty close to uh, the mothership there, and then one right here in Waxahachie. So, um, Pastor Tim, you've been in ministry for a while, and today I want to talk to you about longevity. Right. I want to talk to you about longevity as a minister in a single local church, and then a longevity of a local church in a community. Right. So let's begin by talking about your time at Trinity, which you've had several different capacities. You've been there a little while. So tell us how long you've been there and what roles you've played over the years. Well, I've been there since I was a junior in high school. Uh, I was uh, my, I grew up in Grand Prairie, and at that time, Grand Prairie is probably 10 miles from Cedar Hill. I didn't even know Cedar Hill existed. It just was a, a very small yeah. rural farming community. And I started dating a girl uh, at my school there in Grand Prairie, And her uncle was the new pastor of Trinity Church there, which was meeting at that time at Northwood University in a college classroom. Seen that, seen that campus, yeah. Yeah, so during a window there where my parents left uh, first in Grand Prairie, I said, well, hey, let's, I I said, hey, let's go check out this church in uh, Cedar Hill. And so I started going there as a junior and I've been through that, that ride ever since, you know, from the time that I was a, you know, college student serving there as a youth leader and then ultimately teaching in the school and coaching in the school when we started a Christian school. And then I would uh, become the youth pastor, you know, about, I don't know, about 25 years ago. Wow. So how long did you serve as youth pastor? I was youth pastor for almost 12 years uh, Mm -hmm. back in, you know, from the early to mid, early to mid nineties through the early to mid two thousands. And so um, whenever you transitioned from that, did you step right into this executive pastor role? Yes. I mean, I moved, we never had an executive pastor position in Pastor Hennessy. I'd served alongside him for as a, about a decade with him there as a youth pastor. Mm-hmm. And so he was opening up that position and I stepped into that role. Uh, he, you know, he asked me to, so I'd never done it before. Didn't know what it meant, right? but that's what I did. I'm guessing for an executive pastor with a school in your portfolio, there's probably no average day in the life, but what does your portfolio encompass? Well, we had a business administrator, so that was part of our executive team as well. So okay. we so we've kind of divided those responsibilities, but it's more managing and overseeing uh, the ministry team, the staff. Um, mm-hmm. Overseeing is maybe not even the right word. Just I would say helping them carry out the vision that they're they're doing within the confines of the vision of the church. Okay. So you mentioned um, a few days ago, you, you spoke in, your, in Trinity's youth group a little while back, and you still have a big heart for students. As you've transitioned from youth ministry to this role, how has, um, how has your perspective on just the general pastoral vocation shifted as you've been in all these different seats of responsibility? I think when I was a youth pastor, I mean, because most people don't pay a lot of attention to the youth ministry unless 
something's going wrong. Right. So when things are, are going fairly well, you can have vision as a youth pastor, as a staff member, for as long as it's coming under the covering of your, you know of the leadership of the church. And you're you're pretty much doing it with a team that's there that you've got a volunteer base, or maybe you've got some other paid staff members like we had at, you know at our, at our church during that time. So you have vision when you step into an executive role in the realm that I'm in now over the last you know 15 years. It's not really about me having a vision. It's about me helping Pastor Hennessy and Becky carry out their vision for the ministry as a whole, and it's and mm. I can I can influence vision, but it's really not my role to have to have vision. So I, that's right. the, that's the biggest shift I think in the two roles that I've that I've served. Whenever you step back into that um, that youth setting a few weeks ago, and and maybe as you look back to your youth self now, you know we have a lot of youth ministers who listen to the podcast here. What advice would you give twenty three or twenty four year old Tim serving as a youth pastor? Is there is there anything that um, if you could go back, you wish you had known, or maybe a perspective you wish you had had? When God spoke to me directly about something in my life, which might be a gray area when you look at it from the Word, I would then take what He was telling me to do by the Spirit, you know, writing laws on my the fleshly tablets of my heart, sure. and I would sometimes impart those onto, onto those that I were ministering. So that, that can come across as pretty heavy and sometimes maybe overly re- religious even because I'm trying to make what God's telling me onto my students. So I think as mm-hmm. I've gotten older, I've learned to not be dogmatic on the gray areas of the kingdom. I think that's my thing. As you observe youth ministry now, how do you feel it has changed? I mean, do you feel any of the changes are, in a sense, do you feel, hey, listen, students are still students? Do you feel there's a higher degree of, of difficulty? Um, do you think that's overblown? What do you think? I think it's a hundred thousand times more difficult today than it was when I ended in 2004. Wow. The last time that I, I, I distinctly remember this when I was in, I took a youth leader trip to San Antonio. We were doing an overnight thing. We were eating and then we were going to a Spurs Mavericks games down there. And I looked to my right and I saw one of my, one of my students, my young adult leaders, I think they were 18. And she had the phone, which the, you know, the, the cell phones had been in play for four or five years. And she's doing something with her fingers on the phone. And I said, what are you doing? And she goes, I'm texting. And I said, what's texting? Yeah. I mean, so, and so that's my last two or three months as a youth pastor. So the whole texting, the social media, wow, the, yes. the internet being on the phone and on the tablets, that's just such a huge transformational cultural shift for, for youth leaders. I, I don't know how they do it. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. It's, it's very difficult. Well, a couple of years ago, you're, you're familiar with Tim Elmore. Yeah. And oh, yeah. Uh, he, has a, he has a co, sort of a co-laborer that they're not a ministry per se, but he has an associate in his organization named Andrew McPeak. And so they had, um, they had written a new book about sort of today's students. And I was doing a college ministry podcast at that time and we were able to bring Andrew on to the show, but he talked about, he said in a given day, uh, he talks about students interacting with, I think it was five different screens through the course of a day. And so you're talking about, um, you're talking about television, watch, phone, laptop, tablet. It's interesting. Yeah. Which means the attention span is much more difficult there I mean when you're ministering to them you have to you have to realize how many things are and it's hard for them to sit still for a 30 minute sermon or it's a, it's a different different yeah. beast than than back in you know the early 2000s right so you mentioned a, a moment ago you said in your current role as executive pastor uh, visioneering is not as much your job uh, it's serving pastor Jim's vision um, and he and Becky are both high vision. Oh, very much so. High drive people. Talk from that executive or even just an associate pastor perspective. What advice, uh, listening to the show today or other associate pastors, would you give them about serving a senior leader well? I know you can only give the advice you would give, but, but what would you say? 
I, I mean, I've watched West Wing um, back in the day. I mean, it's not obviously a conservative political TV show, but it, it had great insight into the mm-hmm. the presidential politics, uh, you know, that time. And there's a phrase I always said, you know, the, the staff that worked for the president portrayed on that show, he says, we, the staff said, we serve at the pleasure of the president. So any, right. any time the president can just walk into the office of his staff and go, I don't, I don't, you know, like you anymore. I don't, I want to go in a different direction. You're gone. And I think that's something I've always, I've always kind of taken and not in a negative way, but like I serve at the pleasure of, of pastor and, and Becky in the sense mm-hmm. that I'm there to be their armor bearer. I'm there to hold up their arms when they get tired. I'm there to encourage them. I, I'm not there to lead the church. I mean, I think I would be capable of leading a church mm-hmm. of that size, mm-hmm. but that's not my role in the organization. And I've got to be willing to take that hat. And I, and sometimes you can get frustrated because as a staff member, an executive associate, a youth pastor, worship leader, what children, whatever it is, and you think you can make better decisions. And I think the best advice would be in that role my dad used to say, he would look at me and go, son, last time I checked in this house, no one died. It made you the boss. <laughs> yeah. And so I think yeah. to understand that I'm not the boss and to serve them in a loving way that, I'll, that I'll, I'll lay down my life and sometimes my own vision for them. I think that's a critical role when you are serving in a local church as a staff member. As I'm thinking about that, though, it, whenever you were youth pastor or whenever I was uh Chi Alpha minister in whatever areas that we are actually the one in charge. We're so thankful to have someone that thinks some on our behalf and, and has that disposition you're saying you have for Pastor Jim and Becky that to have that for us. And so one of the one of the encouragements that I've given a lot of younger pastors is, hey, be the guy that you want on staff with you because it's so common. I, I had a, this joke with a Carrie Clarensaw the other day when she was talking about being younger in ministry. We think we see what they see, but we don't see that. And that's not saying, hey, we're dumb and they're wise. No, no it's, it's just a different role they have. It's a different role. It's, it's a different responsibility. And so to remember that as clear as things may seem, there's not a lot of the emotional complications. There's not the weight of the finances. There's not the spiritual weight that just happens when you step into a role. Well, I think also as a, as a staff member as well, it's important for me to know my role with pastor. You know, it, you know, we're a large church. We have a large staff. You know, So not everybody gets direct access to him. I get probably more direct access to him just through the position that I have than most other people. But, you know, we've been together a long time. We've been together almost 25 years on, you know, serving together. And so we're friends and we're friends in a lot of ways. We, mm-hmm. we know each other well. We know our families well. But I also have to know that sometimes I'm just, I'm just, I'm just an employee. I'm just, a, I'm just a staff member. And so to be able to navigate what my role is in a certain situation, I think is important for every, every leader because ultimately I'm not there to be his best friend I'm not, and he's not there to be my best friend mm-hmm. and I'm there to serve him. Doesn't mean I don't have dreams. Doesn't mean I don't have vision. Doesn't mean I don't have ideas. But when our two visions or dreams, you know, conflict, I've got to I've got to lay mine down and be mm-hmm. okay with that. Let me throw this question at you, um, and I'm not even sure how to formulate it because it's just uh, I'm trying to work it out as I'm talking. I'm like Michael Scott. He said he doesn't always know where he's going to land something when he starts talking. He just hopes to find <laughs> yeah, it along the good. way. <laughs> um, how how can an associate pastor? Um, help their senior leader be at their best? I think every good senior leader staffs his weaknesses. Mm-hmm. And so I think that we, as a staff, a lot of times we, we, we need to recognize that sometimes what we're good at, the senior pastor might not be as good at. Mm-hmm. And so therefore, we can shore up those weaknesses without getting arrogant, without getting overconfident. And we can also 
areas that they may not pay, pay a lot of focus to that we know that are maybe critical to the, the heartbeat of the mm-hmm. church and the ministry, we have to sometimes fill in those gaps, either relationally, just going hanging out with, with couples or families or, or individuals that, that the pastor may not have all the time to do. We've got to be willing yeah. to step into the, to the spaces he can't get to. Our, our family um, has a kind of a chapter a day Bible devotional setup, and so our kids right now they're going through the Book of Acts for the first time. And a couple of days ago, I was taking them through it, and we we're reading Acts chapter six. And so that's that's actually my favorite leadership passage in the yes. Bible. And it's you know the the grumbling arose between the Greek speaking Jews and the the Hebrew speaking Jews about widows being overlooked in the distribution. And so they did, I think, what is natural for so many staff people or um, church members, they went and complained to the people in charge and said, hey, fix it. And everything that sort of came after that, whenever the apostle said, listen, it's not right for us to leave teaching about God's word to do this. Wasn't saying we're too good for this. They're just there is so much time. We have this, but let's appoint seven people full of Holy Spirit and wisdom. So you remember that. Oh, yeah. What I love about it, and I was telling my kids, I said, this is really interesting. This is... um. This is food ministry, but it's the first time the book of Acts uses the language of multiplication of the church for what follows after. So with that, up to that point, they had said several times and the church was added to, but after they were able to appoint more leaders to free the 12 up to do what the 12 should be doing, the church multiplied. Yes. So I think there's something beautiful about that of, um, of trying to free our leaders up to be themselves and to do what they can do and to watch God work with that. But when you just read this statement that the apostles made at face value there, it's it's not right for us to waste our time waiting on tables. Yeah. It's almost it almost makes you look at it and, and you step back and go, Wow, that's almost offensive. But the reality of it is in it's not offensive because the leader has gone to a certain level. They paid a certain price that we've never paid. They don't like you said earlier, we don't really understand the complexities a lot of times of what they're going through. And, it, and and Stephen and Philip and the rest of those guys, they just stepped in and just served with a great attitude. Right. I mean, right. Yeah. It's amazing. It really is. So, okay. So we're talking about your longevity in the local church. Let's switch to uh, the rest of the podcast here and talk about the longevity of Trinity as a church in that community. You mentioned the days it was starting in college campus college classroom. classroom. That's that's just incredible. One of the things I've been in awe of of the Cedar Hill campus is you don't just see thousands of people, and there are thousands of people, but you see an incredibly diverse thousands of people. You see every ethnicity. You see lots of different nationalities. So on that diversity piece, you kind of hinted at the answer earlier. You said Cedar Hill used to be a farming community. Yes, rural. So All it, white. So this diversity hadn't always been there over the years, no. and the church has it. So how, how has that changed over time? I mean, again, when I, I mean, when I first arrived, I mean, into Cedar Hill, I mean, it's just, there's, I mean, there's no, there's no commerce. There's, there's a Dairy Queen and a gas station. It's a small high school. There's no Joe Pool Lake that's there now that was, that's been, that was developed, you know, in the early 80s and, right. and um, the things that are there. So as people do what they do in our culture, as, as, you know, what is generally known as white flight began to happen. Mm-hmm. It moved into the south part of the suburbs of of, um, of Dallas where ethnic minorities began moving into a middle-class area where they wanted to move. They were being successful. Well, as they moved into that area, into Duncanville, DeSoto, Cedar Hill, Lancaster, those places there, for various reasons, you know, the, the whole community began to shift. Right. Um, and And so if you look around 
if you go back into that time, into the, when it all happened, probably the mid to late 90s when that began to happen, about 20 years ago, there were a, a lot of very influential churches. Um, I could name names, but it, I, I prefer not to do that right now. Sure. That no longer are there, or they've moved way, for, way further south because they could not adapt for what various reasons to the, the, the changing community around them. That's a common occurrence with yes. churches. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And so, um, so obviously Trinity did, did not do that. What, what's interesting about it and what's, I, I think is a dream to me, a dream scenario for a church is that demographically you reflect the geography that you're in. Yes. <laughs> and so yes. that, that's you happened have to. with you. You have yeah. to be full of life. Right. And so, um, are there any strategic decisions? I mean, you guys chose, okay, we're not going to find a new up and coming suburb where we can all be white together. As <laughs> <laughs> You guys decided not to do that. Uh, that's um, funny. What were those strategic decisions like? What were what went into those conversations? I mean, I assume that this didn't just happen. Y'all made choices. Some of it is like it's coming to you so fast that you don't even recognize it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was I was in the school and and coaching for a, a number and my my first eight or nine years. I might I know basketball was my primary, girls and boys different different times. I might have coached three total black athletes in that eight to, first eight to nine-year window at, the, at Trinity Christian School there on our campus. Over the last 10 years, I've still stayed involved in coaching our, our boys' high school basketball team, and I might have been coaching – I might have coached four or five white athletes, and right. two of those were my, my sons. So right. <laughs> the shift happened so fast. Some of it, we, it, wasn't, it wasn't really intentional. It just We just decided this, this, is, this is where we are. We're going to stay. Mm-hmm. But then I look at the intentional things that Pastor and Be- Pastor Jim and Pastor Becky did, and I think every great leader having a community could learn from what from the decisions that they made. I, I had coffee with Pastor Jim and Becky a while back, and as they talked a little bit about this aspect of the church, uh, Becky said, "This has not come without a price." Oh yeah. And so I, I'm really, really grateful that you guys were willing to pay that. I don't know all the ins and outs of what that price was, but I'm grateful that you did it. Well, I think I think the first thing they did was that they began to intentionally put people on the platform of and in, into our publication pieces, which is very common today. But what you know, going back twenty years ago, wasn't as common. So you're, right. you're trying to put someone of a different, you know, a woman up on the stage, someone that might be younger. Then you're trying you're trying to put someone that's Hispanic or or African American. I mean, as our community is changing, we're trying to get people as they're coming into the service, that new and visitors, that they're identifying with somebody they see up on the stage. And right. so I think that intentionality was very, very important that Pastor and Becky did. Mm. And, and the price they paid for that, sometimes people, if you if you tip it too far, too quick, people can get, I mean, just culturally they can get, a, we, we don't like that. It's too much at a certain time. So people right. rock the boat and don't like sometimes change like that. Mm. Man, we could probably spend all day right right here on that. Uh, just one one last comment on this. Uh, I had Bishop Aaron Blake on the podcast a couple of months ago now, I think. And uh, we spent two um, episodes talking about racial reconciliation and then one about um, affecting that as, as pastor, like from the pulpit perspective. But Bishop Blake actually said, he said, the best sermon I've ever heard addressing ethnic tensions from a pulpit came from Becky Hennessy at Cedar Hill. And so uh, this this being a, a very white woman, <laughs> of course, but it says something about the, about the heart of the church that uh, Bishop Aaron Blake said, I haven't seen it done better than, than she did it. I think Becky has a heart 
I mean, she has a missionary heart. She always has, and she always wants. She never. She wants to help anybody she can. So she has an immediate heart to help any age group, any gender, any ethnic diversity. She's there, and I think one thing that Pastor Jim and Pastor Becky have done, and especially in the last decade, to the best of their ability, they have stewarded. I think the political climate of different cultures mm-hmm. way better than anybody I've ever seen. Wow. Because, you know, when everybody, I mean, half our church, even right now, you know, we're pretty split with about a third Hispanic, about a third African-American, about a third white. But about half our church believes that the current president is, you know, the Antichrist for no, for a little better. The mm-hmm. other half of our church loves our current president. Uh, to go back, you know, to the previous administration of President Obama, I mean, the same thing. Half our church loved President Obama. He's amazing. And the other half thought President Obama was, you know. So to yeah. be able to steward that from the pulpit to where you can navigate and not and not take sides and let the kingdom, you right. know, we're all one in Christ Jesus and we're not Jew, we're not Greek, we're not male, nor female. That, to me, is probably, as the community begins to change around you, you've got to be able to do that. If you stay entrenched into your cultural group, it'll die. It mm. will. It will literally die. Yeah. Well, let's uh, let's close out by talking about Trinity's core values, and um, which is sort of an odd thing to throw into the podcast here. But I'm just intrigued by them, and I want to hear you talk about two of them because I think they're good for church in general. But uh, Trinity's four core values: this idea of substance, covenant relationships, legacy, and marketplace. I think covenant relationships and legacy. We'll leave that to people to figure out or think about. Um, but let's focus on two of them that strike me as really interesting. How does Trinity emphasize this core value of marketplace? I think once pastor got those core values in his heart, again, that, that came about it probably about, again, about 15, 16 years ago where he developed the core values. It was actually out of the, uh, the general council, um, uh, the National General Council in, I think, in Denver. Um, he they just stirred in his heart in, I think, 2004, 2005, came over the year. But out of that moment, and marketplace became a, a huge part of what we did. And so he came back and really began to embed into the city. Became really, because Cedar Hill is still kind of small, you know, in some ways as we were growing. And so he literally became almost the pastor of the city. Mm-hmm. Him and the mayor got really close. He, they got involved in a vision called Transformation Vision. Our business administrator was high in the city. And so we invested in the city with time. We invested in the city with relationships. We invested in the city with our finances. We would we would actually give you know, money out of our church that we could have done to build up our local church. Some of that we would give into local outreaches that they were doing or things that the city did was important to just to let them know we're a part, we're a part here. We're partnering with you. And, yeah. and I think you can't isolate yourself from the community if you're really going to have a marketplace vision. So it's critical. Well, you guys have something, um, I forget what the, the title is, but you, you have a day of blessing for uh, business members who are a part of Trinity. What, what is that, and what does that look like? On Labor Day weekend, um, on that Sunday uh, of Labor Day, we invite any business in our, that's involved inside of our church. You know, we have a number of small businesses, you know, you know self-employed, people who have self-starting businesses. And so then we create a business fair for them. They can set up their, their booth kind of advertising their business all down our, all down our foyer. I think this year we had about 60 mm-hmm. and then the people of our church, we pray over the business leaders that, that morning in both services. And then the people but before, during and after can go out and just hang out and get to know the business. And so it's a huge, it's a huge day that we want to bless those businesses with just, Hey, we know that you're here. Our people know that you're here and then we're praying over you, but also we might go do business with you in the future because now we know you're a part of who we are. Yeah. So it's a big deal. We've done it like six or seven years in a row and it helps 
a low weekend, which is Labor Day weekend normally. It really <laughs> gives us good numbers in a practical sense. Yeah, that's a little strategery. At different churches I've been at over the years, I've usually served as a teaching pastor, just helping pinch hit. I found that I was always preaching on Labor Day, and they weren't there. Yes. <laughs> What's going on? What's up with that? Because they're on their three-day weekend. Like. Yeah. So uh, so Trinity emphasizes marketplace. And then uh, lastly, this this idea of substance. What do you mean by that? Our schedule can't get in, way, get in the way of the Holy Spirit. That's one. But And when people come to church, to Trinity Church, and I'm sure every pastor hearing, our, hearing this podcast today or every leader, is, it's no different. You want them to encounter, have, a, have an encounter during that service window or that discipleship window with their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and, mm-hmm. and then the power of the Holy Spirit to come into them. And so we're, we're not going to back away from the gifts of the Spirit if they, they arise in the middle of our service, no matter what our schedule might say. I mean, we might bang the parking lot against each other at times, you know, just be, because it got so deep in the presence during our worship or the altar time. But you want to feel God when you show up, and you want to meet Him when you get there. And that's right. just the best way we can describe substance. I was, uh, I was visiting a Sunday morning at the Cedar Hill campus fairly recently, and public word was like came up in, in church. And so um, I think a message in tongues and interpretation. And I love the way Pastor Jim stewarded that moment, which wasn't rocket science, but it was deliberate. He opened the Bible and, and he said, this is what just happened. Tim, it's my, my opinion that a lot of our AG churches are missing out on the spiritual gifts being that sign for the unbeliever that they could be by not doing something as simple as that. You know, I think he's always approached the kingdom through his through his, through his mind because he, he intellectually works that way. But he then he the heart of the spirit led pastor is developed in a way that's so it's made a great combination in which he does steward. I think in a really good way that conflict that I think pastors have between a seeker sensitive and you know how do we let the gifts of the spirit flow in the middle of our Sunday morning worship service when we have new believers here mm-hmm. and you just gotta trust that. The Holy Spirit knows what he's doing with those new believers. And then you can say, this is here in the Bible. This is why we do that. He goes, this is in 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Corinthians 14. And I think it, it's very, it, it can take you aback if you're a guest, but at the same time, there's a comfort there that it's being stewarded in a way that's that they can understand it. Right. And Trinity is one of, one of a, a, just a couple of, I mean, these are just super large settings. So I think this is, a, if anything, it's easier, somewhat easier to do in a smaller setting. Yes. But uh, I, I've seen Pastor Scott Wilson at the Oaks uh, steward such moments oh, yes. similarly. Oh, yes. It gives people confidence in the gifts of the Spirit, I believe. I, I, I just really appreciate well, I think, it. I think in the North Texas district, our, our, our pastors of our, our, our influential churches are really doing a good job of moving in the substance and the and the spirit in mm-hmm. a way that I, I think is a model for you know for our nation in a lot of ways. If I can just say something positive about our uh, our executive leadership right now, <laughs> uh, Dr. Clanch and Kermit Bell and, and Pastor Greg Headley, uh, this is very important to them. Yes, and I know they've they've talked with Pastor yes. Jim Hennessy about um, you know you guys are a good example of, of something we would like to see in our churches, and uh, so so those are men who really seek the Lord and. Um, and want to see more of this as well. Wow. So. I know that. I know them all really well. And, and uh, the leadership, you know, from Rick has has just really, it's, it's continued at a really high level for our yeah. district. Yeah, I think so too. Well, last 10%, Pastor, um, what is just some general encouragement you'd like to leave your fellow ministers with? Um, we have men and women, senior pastors and youth pastors on mountaintops and in valleys. But if you could leave us with anything, what would that be? 
I mean, I've been in, I've been given a difficult difficult assignment over the last year. Um, that that when I first was given the assignment, I thought, God, you know, what do you have against me? You know, what did I do to deserve this? <laughs> I mean, I, you know, but it's part of part of the job. Sometimes you get asked to do things that are that are tough that you may or may not be inclined to do initially. But I remember I was telling I was telling the church last week that that when I got into it, somebody walked up to me at the altar and said, I know this is, I know you're going through a rough time right now with this, with this particular leadership assignment. He says, but just remember there's something beautiful on the other side of this. Mm. And, you know, nine months later, I mean, it was amazing. It's been an amazing journey. And, and, the, and there has been a beautiful thing on the other side of that, of that assignment. And I think a lot of times as ministers, we forget that ministry is hard, ministry is difficult, and sometimes it, it can get discouraging but God has us in those valley seasons sometimes, or even those challenging seasons, battle seasons for a reason. And he does have something beautiful on the other side of it for them. Don't tell him not to get discouraged. He'll, he'll, he'll bring them out on the other side. Well, friends, I'm going to let that take us out. And so I hope you're encouraged today. Hope you've enjoyed this. And um, we'll be back with you next week. So God bless you as you spend another week serving Jesus and his bride, the local church. Mm-hmm.